We're back in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, so if you've got a Bible and want to turn to page 1087, I'm actually going to start reading at verse 2, which is where this passage um, sort of starts, and I'm going to read down, for the time being, down to verse 22, although we will pick up the rest of the passage a little bit later on. And it's entitled, Uncovering the Head in Worship. I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair... It is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I always want to put in a little bracket there. Thanks, Paul, for clearing all that up. (laughs) Then we carry on. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come and eat together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. But when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. We need to pray for some clarity, I think, as we look at this passage, don't we? Dear Lord, we acknowledge that this is your word, and we thank you that your word speaks to us by your Holy Spirit. And I want to pray that as we look at what is a very difficult passage to understand this morning, that you will speak into our lives. Give us great clarity, we pray, this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny, isn't it, how different phrases or different things in different places can be called different things or named different things. What are these called? Anyone want to call them something different? Balms. Anything else? Buns? Baps? Bread cake? What was that? Donuts. I don't know what part of the country Simon comes from. 
If you're from the Midlands, you might call them batches. There's all kinds of different names that we get for these things. What about these? What are these called? Who's the scone? Who's the scone? You're correct, with a minority correct on that one. A number of years ago, Claire's dad, um, who's a minister in the States, just after they'd, they'd moved over there, got himself into a bit of a cultural muddle, praying for somebody. He'd grown up for most of his life, the first 50-odd years of his life, in South Manchester, and in a particular part of Stockport. And there was a phrase that he used when somebody wasn't very well. And the phrase was, they're not so clever. <laughs> you can see where this is going, can't you? Have you ever come across that as a term? Yeah, you've probably heard that. And he was there praying for, um, I think the story goes something like this, that a minister was due to come and preach in the church that day, but his wife had been taken quite seriously ill and couldn't make it to church. So he cancelled the preach and somebody stood in for them. Claire's dad is stood there at the front of this church in front of hundreds of people and says, Pastor such and such isn't here today because his wife's not so clever. <laughs> this caused offence. <laughs> The man came up and said afterwards, I have you know, my wife is very intelligent. She has a degree. She has many qualifications. What happened is two cultures had come together and done that. Totally misunderstood one another and misunderstood what was about. And the result initially, well, I suppose it was a fence until it was explained. And then I think everybody thought, actually, that's quite funny that we've misunderstood one another. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we suddenly realize that we're in a totally different cultural world to the church in Corinth in the first century. And I think our job, if anything, this morning is to try and pick back, pull back some of those cultural layers and say, what is culture in here? And what is God's Spirit speaking to the church for all places and in all times? I don't think we can understand this passage unless we read it as well in the context of what has come before and what sort of Paul's line and thread of argument is as he's going through the book. This isn't a sudden veering off for Paul, sort of, um, in terms of what subject he's dealing with. He's not about to get into hairstyles and sort of issues of hat wearing out of the blue. This is all about being Christ-central, honouring Jesus in how we behave, in the way that we act, in what we do. And what he's doing now is, is going to look at the public worship sphere, if you like, how the church in Corinth worships when they gather together. And what what they do says about themselves, says about God, and says to the watching world outside. So in order just to give a bit of context, if you've got your Bible there, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 to 33, this sort of sets up a little bit of the context of where we now go. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God... Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many may be saved. This passage that we're looking at today has been used in um, sort of uh, all types of different messages, different types of studies about Paul's thinking on all kinds of things, about worship, about headship in marriage, about dress codes, about gender roles within the church, about sexuality. And even more recently, people have used this passage to start discussing issues of transgender. We won't be unpacking all of those this morning, just in case you worry. It's one of those passages that is a bit like an onion. You know, as you start peeling one layer back, you realize there's another one underneath. And it's one of those passages that is also a nightmare for a preacher, because whatever you say, you're going to leave 
far more uncovered than you're actually going to talk about. So there'll be so much this morning that I won't say that I probably could have said. But let's try and go through and let's see what we can get out of this. Let's look at the head, first of all. If you're counting, as we read through the passage, Paul uses this word 12 times. And he uses it to mean different types of head, just to make it more confusing. The word in English is the same kind of word as the word in the Greek. It has the same meaning, so we've got no clue by going back to the original language. Just the word head. Head can mean this, thing that sits on the top of your shoulders. Head can also mean the head as in the head teacher, you know, the source of authority, or the head of a company. Head can also mean source as in originating from, like the head of the river is in the mountains, or the head of the shower is above my head. You know that sort of thing? As including source. Paul doesn't tell us which head he's talking about at different times. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious. So we have to try and work out which head's he talking about, and if we get the wrong one, we'll get the wrong meaning. Are we confused? We'll try and give a bit more clarity as we go through. Look at verse 3. Head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Well, we can rule this head out, so we've got two options. Which head is it? Is this a passage, first of all, about origins, or is it about authority? I want to suggest this morning that actually what Paul is doing is taking us right back to think about creation and Genesis chapter 2. I don't know if you know the account of Genesis chapter 2 where we get the detailed description of how God creates Eve from Adam's rib. And that Adam becomes, if you like, the source of the creation of Eve. We can then sort of look for other passages in Scripture that talk about us as having all our life coming from God. Paul says in Acts 17 verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. The source of Christ is also God. If we want to use a very complicated language of the early church, we sing it actually at Christmas, so you'll you'll know these words. God from God, light from light, begotten, not created. These words that say that the source of Christ is God and is for all eternity. He's not created, but he comes from God eternally. So that's one issue of head. We then get another issue of head a bit later on, because his discussions change. And he starts talking about the relationship between man and woman. Just to confuse matters even further, man and woman can also, in the original language, just as readily mean husband and wife. So we get another possible discussion. Verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. We may now be on to something about the ordering of the marriage relationship. If you want to pick that theme up, go and read Ephesians 5 this afternoon. You can do a bit more Bible study on that issue. Head coverings. You know, hats in our British Western culture don't really carry any sense of definitive meaning, do they? Not anymore. They do in some cultures. If you're in the Middle East this morning and you're a Christian, there'll be all kinds of things. We'll be talking about this passage very differently. But it's not that long ago that every man wore a hat. Anybody know what that picture is? I don't suppose anybody does. No reason why you should. Cup final. Sometime in the 1920s, that sort of time. That's Crystal Palace fans. Notice what all the men have on the head? A hat. Everybody at that period, every man, would wear a hat. And there were culturally things that you would do with that hat. You know, if there was a lady walking past, what would you do? You'd do that. 
if somebody had died, what would you do? Take your hat off, a sign of respect. We have lost those cultural meanings to a hat over the last hundred years. I wear a hat for two reasons, and I'm not going to demonstrate this morning. <laughs> One of them is when I'm cold and not having much insulation, I put a woolly hat on. The other is when it's very sunny and not having much to protect my head, I put a hat on. There are no other, there are even fashion meanings behind why I put a hat on. There may be for you, but there aren't for me. It's just very practical. Verse 4 and 5, if you look at this, this is about both men and women prophesying in the church. We can easily skip over this verse by getting sort of strung up about hats and head coverings and things. But this is a verse of immense depth to us, I think. Because what it shows is that in the early church, it was totally normal for both men and for women to be involved in bringing the word of the Lord and to praying. This is normal. This is what the church was like. But there's a problem. Men were dishonoring God by covering their heads, and women were dishonoring God by having their heads uncovered. Why? That is the big question here. Why is that the case, and what was going on? Well, I think we can miss the cultural point here if we're not careful. The, the church was relishing the freedom that they had in Christ. I think this sort of underpins it, but they were, get, they were getting it wrong. And as we've already seen in this letter, um, it was going down all kinds of avenues. They were getting into sexually immoral relationships, all kinds of things, all kinds of divisions were coming out in the church because they were getting the issue of Christian freedom wrong. But for the men on this issue of head covering, if you were a man in a pagan temple and you were a priest, when you sacrificed an animal to Zeus, do you know what they did? They covered their heads. They would take their toga and they would put it over their heads as a sign of respect to the God to which they were offering the sacrifice. It's not hard to imagine Paul saying to them, don't look like a pagan priest. Don't look like you're in sort of involved with that kind of thing. Make the church stand out in how it appears. Don't dishonor yourself by doing anything of that nature. There are clothes even today that we could wear that would cause outrage in the church. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But if somebody came in in an outfit of the Ku Klux Klan, or somebody came in with symbolisms of Nazism or of ISIS terrorist groups on their person, we would say that has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. I think this is what Paul is getting at here. Don't do anything that associates yourself with those pagan rituals. And it was the same for women, but in the opposite way around. In women, for women in Corinth, most women would wear a veil if they were a respectable woman. Here we go, here's a, a woman in Corinth. That's actually a statue from the time that we're talking about. See what she's got around her head? She's got a veil. That was the normal headdress of women. If you were seen in public without that, it meant, basically, you were available for sex. It could have meant even that you were a prostitute. And Paul says, you don't want to look like that in church. Don't give that impression. And that's why in verse 6 he says, if you're going to go down that road, then shave your whole hair off and be bald. The reason for that is that a bald woman, somebody who had a totally shaved head, meant they'd been caught in the act of adultery. So you see what Paul could be talking about here is all this stuff that's going on. All this business about head coverings made a great deal in Paul's day. And this is, I think this commentator puts it much more simply than I can. What the Corinthians did with their heads mattered because of either the sexual or religious implications 
of their appearance. They were, drawing their, they were using their freedom in the wrong way. They were drawing attention away from Jesus to leaving people to think other things about themselves. And it was bringing the church into disrepute. They were looking just like the pagan sects and cults that were around in Corinth at the time. You know, for us today, sadly, there are things that we can do that dishonor and disgrace ourselves in front of God. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's go on and look at hair. All kinds of different hairstyles there. How we have our hair today, I would suggest, really doesn't say a great deal. Not culturally. Women can have long hair, short hair, in-between hair, curly hair, straight hair. And it's just part of our culture. Men can have no hair, some hair, long hair, same kind of thing. You know, I'm a bit limited in terms of my choices. Although I did find this. I thought I could go for this as a new look. Better get rid of that before you get too distracted. But in Paul's day, for a man to have long hair, again, had sexual overtones. Because the prostitutes in the temples who were men wore their hair really long, and it was a sign that they were available for sex with other men. So you see the symbolism that starts to come in with the men with the long hair. Whereas for a woman, long hair was a sign of your glory. It was a sign that you were a wholesome sort of person. So Paul underlines the same principles. Verse 16, all the churches of God go along with this. They fit with the cultural norms so that actually they don't distract people away from Jesus. So they don't start to look like something they aren't. We could summarize the situation by saying the church in Corinth was free. They knew they were free but actually they were starting to misuse their freedom to look like they weren't. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. This is what the Corinthians write to Paul. I have the right to do anything. Paul quips back, but not everything is beneficial. They say, I have the right to do anything. Paul quips back again, but not everything is constructive. They thought they could behave and look exactly as they wanted because they were free in Christ. But Paul says, actually, that isn't portraying Christ to the world. You are not honoring yourself. You are not honoring God by behaving like this. So basically, the men were looking like pagans or prostitutes, which was a disgrace to themselves. Women were looking like they were available for sex. If they were married, that was a disgrace both for themselves and if they were married to their husbands. And even more than that, I don't know if you noticed in verse 10, Paul suddenly throws in, because of the angels. It's like, thanks, Paul. We were confused enough, and now you suddenly throw in something about angels. Probably the best way of understanding that is just as it says it is. Because there are angels, there are spiritual beings who are messengers of God, who watch over God's creation. And we don't only disgrace ourselves, but we disgrace those who are watching over us in the spiritual realm. Put it up a layer again, we start to disgrace Christ if we start to try and think we can behave in these kind of ways. The church was just looking like a sexualized pagan cult. And it was a disgrace on so many different levels. You know, the gospel cannot ever be mixed with behavior that makes us look anything than disciples of Jesus. I think that is the message here. We can't mix those kind of things together. A few years ago, I had a a very sad encounter, actually, with um, a couple of people who'd got taken up by a Christian cult, or say a sub-Christian cult. On the surface of it, this cult 
looked Christian. They used the right language. They, they said the right things. But you dug under the surface a little bit and you realized that there's some pretty horrendous stuff going on. This cult would send young girls out to seek converts by offering themselves sexually to, to men. And you see, this has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. That had absolutely nothing to do with the gospel that we see presented in the Bible. And Paul, I can imagine here, is saying, just keep yourself away from anything that even has a hint of that. The church has got to reflect Jesus, or it isn't the church at all. Just think of outsiders looking in. If you don't look like the church of Jesus Christ, how are they going to see Jesus through you? How are they going to see Jesus? So what on earth do we do with all this? It's one thing saying what was going on in Corinth. It's another thing then sort of pulling the layers back and saying, well, what does this mean for us today? Some contemporary churches still observe this passage word for word. If you're a woman, put on a hat. If you're a man, cut your hair. Or not, as the case may be. If you're a woman, if you've not got long hair, grow your hair. Is that a good way to treat this passage? You know, pop on a hat, and this is all covered. I would massively want to challenge that this morning. What does it achieve? Does it get under the skin of this passage? I think there's an issue here that goes much deeper than whether we put a hat on our head or have our hair in a particular style. I think there are massively serious implications for us individually that are in this passage, that if we get taken up with issues like that, we miss the point. And so for all of us, men and women this morning, I just want to ask us a question. Do we ever dishonor God in our hearts? Do we individually ever look less than we should do to a world who is watching us to see if we reflect Jesus? If we want an absolutely direct application of what this could be like today, do we ever dress to impress people of the opposite sex? This is if we're, we're married. I'm not talking about our dressing to impress our husbands and wives. That, if you've been on the marriage course, you know that is a good thing. But do we ever in our hearts think, oh, such and such will be there. I'll dress to impress them. And we find ourselves going down dangerous roads. It might not be blatant, it might not be clothing. But do we find ourselves ever behaving in ways that start to subvert the gospel? It might be that unnecessary long chat on Facebook if you're married with somebody who isn't your husband or wife or on Snapchat or whatever it is. But those things that start to make us into dangerous places, take us into places that are not honoring God. Whether married or single, do we dress in ways that honor God, that reflect Jesus to the world? Or do we dress in ways that deliberately in our hearts we know are being provocative or ostentatious or just drawing our attention to ourselves. To all of us, you know, it's very easy to send the wrong signals out to people. It's very easy to make the church look like something it isn't. And you know, actually, we can take this way beyond just the issue that Paul talks about here, because Paul does that next. We're not doing anything Paul doesn't do. This isn't just about sort of sexuality and how we look and marriage relationships but it expands beyond that. Do we ever, as a church, look and behave like anything other than the church of Jesus Christ? I know in my own life I do. I would imagine all of us, we do as well. When we do that, 
We dishonour not only ourselves, we dishonour one another. We take Paul's logic, we dishonour the angels, and we dishonour Christ himself. So Paul goes on, and he starts to look at another issue that can seem like he's suddenly totally changing tack. But actually he isn't. This is all part of the same discussion. And it's abuse that is taking place during the Lord's Supper. This point in the history of the church, the Lord's Supper wouldn't be like how we celebrate it today. You know, we use tokens, don't we, of sort of a small glass of wine and a small piece of bread. That only started to happen in the second and third centuries. Up until then, when the church met for communion, they would have a full meal together, and it would last all evening. I think we should go back to those days. It sounds, sounds much better. Um, and it was something to celebrate. It was celebrating all the...